All right, good morning. Let's uh, flip over to Romans 16. Should uh, finish off the letter today. Before I get going on that, uh, kind of a cool announcement. So for about, I don't know, two or three months, uh, our elder board and uh, the elder board of um, Logan Roan Chapel out in Lewis and Clark, uh, Oregon, right there by Astoria, uh, it's a Spanish-speaking church, and we've been talking. Uh, they started a Bible study a while ago in Chinook, and um, it's grown, and they don't have a place to meet. So they contacted us and asked us to uh, consider letting them uh, meet here uh, to use the building. So anyway, over a couple months of prayer and talking and so forth, they're going to be starting to use the building on Monday nights. So, uh, which is pretty cool because since I've been here, we've been praying about a Spanish ministry. Um, and uh, as far as I know, there, is, there isn't a Protestant Spanish uh, service here on the peninsula. So uh, if you drive by the church at Monday night at 6 and you come in and no one is speaking your native tongue, you know why. Um, so we're, we're really excited. Uh, the pastor's there. His name's Gustavo. He's a great guy. He's really excited about just showing the community, uh, even just unity between races and just showing that, you know, Christians, uh, Mexicans and, and white folks and whatever, we're all believers and we're just here to worship the Lord. Uh, I've had a lot of great talks with them. I think we're very much, um, uh, our two churches very much have a very similar style of, or philosophy of ministry and just helping people, preaching the grace of God, the healing of God and so forth. So super stoked. Um, so anybody's welcome. So if you want to go, I mean, you can go. I'll probably go for the first couple and understand nothing. Uh, but uh, <laughs> anybody's welcome. So very excited about that. So if you come by on Monday nights, you're like, what's going on there? That is what's going on. Uh, I don't know. I'm meeting him here at 6 to give him a key. So I don't know. And just so you know, we're not charging them. You know, we were given this building for free. Uh, I don't know if you guys know that or not. This building was given to our church 10 years ago. Uh, 10 years ago in February, uh, for free. Uh, it was paid for and everything. So we are charging them. Well, it's, it's a reimbursement because they're going to be using our coffee and so forth. So 50 bucks a month uh, to be able to replenish our coffee supplies. Um, that's not like a money bragamony or something. I'm just trying to let you know that's where we're at with things. All right. Romans chapter 16. So this is the end of the letter, and there's, it's, it's interesting because if you recall last week, we were in the first half of 16, and it's all about just these amazing relationships and fellowship that Paul has had along the way, right? He talks about people, he lists 28 people, and there's a little commentary for each person that he, he calls them to greet. There's a commentary, you know, uh, including one guy who says, this is the first convert in Asia. <laughs> you know, that's kind of cool, I guess. Uh, maybe put that on your epitaph or something, but the... Uh, you know, you, you had a lot of them were just, they, he said these are people that worked hard. He, a lot of them, he said, these are people that, uh, like, for example, Phoebe, he said, this is a person who is a deaconess at this church, and she's coming to you with my letter. Although it doesn't say she has the letter in there, that's more of a, a, a Bible history thing. And make sure you take care of her and give her what she needs to do her job there with this letter. Uh, we just talked about, essentially, that one of the most important things in Christianity is fellowship. Uh, you know, in Acts 2.42, it says that they were the, the disciples, the, the church was committed to uh, the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, to prayers, and to fellowship. And sometimes I think you can kind of sneak in there like fellowship's kind of this like last thing. You know, we're all, and, and we're all about the Word, which we are, right? We love the Word of God. We think it's really important. It's the supreme authority in our lives. It's what we look at for uh, life and godliness and leading and all those things, Right? Uh, prayer, we're, I think we're on board with that. We like the fact that God has said, hey, if you ask me for things that are my will, I will do that for you. We're like, hey, we're on board with that. But a lot of times, for some reason, fellowship can kind of be this thing where it's like the last resort, or if I have to, or I'm going to hide, or you know, whatever it might be. It can be a little bit uh, uh, scary or, or whatever. And, but I think ultimately, fellowship is really the venue in which all those other things happen, Right? In other words, you get the studying of the word, you get the prayer, you get those things. You know, prayer is significantly more comfortable uh, with people that you know and you know that care about you, isn't it? You know, isn't, it, isn't considering the word of God significantly more acceptable and easier when you are in a place where you feel like, okay, these people, they care about me. If someone encourages me or shares something with me, 
you know, I know that they're doing it because they care about me, right? Th- those are all things. You can minister the word without fellowship, and a lot of times it just becomes, it can just be words. If you don't think someone cares about you and they're just telling you what the Bible says, is it easy to receive or is it difficult to receive? Is it resistant or are you more apt to accept it? All that to say is Paul laboring in the work meets all these people all over the place. Remember, he's never been to Rome. So he names 28 people that they're supposed to greet in Rome and he's never been there. So these are just people that he met in his journeys and people that he, he, he labored with for the work and so forth. And so for many of us that are seeking that fellowship, seeking that, uh, that unity, that care, we have this recipe. And the recipe really is in, in to be investing. And in whatever way God's leading you to do that, there's no formula, I don't think, to develop relationships, uh, meaningful relationships. Uh, I think it just takes time and it takes effort. Uh, we talked about forgiveness and working with one another, caring for one another, all those types of things. So that was, uh, to me anyway, it's a very encouraging part because for my own personal Christian life, it was never uh, the Word of God that won me. Um, I'm sure, obviously, God's Word spoke to me in, in times of my life. But it was never this thing in, in, the, in the beginning of my Christian life. It was never something where I was like, I'm just so hungry for the Word. I've, I've heard people talk about that in their testimonies and admired that. And in my early Christian life, that wasn't the case. I could have cared less about the Word. But what something that what won me over uh, was just a small group of people, not even in the same demographic in the church. A couple college guys. I was 16 when I got saved. So a couple college guys would invite me out to play basketball with them. Uh, the lady that I read the letter from last week, you know, that really encouraged me, uh, treated me as a, as a son when I was uh, wild and angry and violent and these different things that had going on in my life that I was dealing with. And that's what won me. And it was through that love and that care that then let me be open to the word, if that makes sense. I'm not saying the word's not powerful. I'm not saying the word doesn't have value. I'm not saying we shouldn't preach the gospel. I'm not saying those things at all. I'm saying that when those things are done in fellowship with love, in my opinion, and you can disagree with it, it has a significantly um, higher success rate, <laughs> if you'd like to put it that way. But I think it's, it's very helpful. Um, anyway, all that to say, so on this side of Romans 16... Uh, Paul is going to deal something, deal with something a little bit darker. So he talked all about that we shouldn't place uh, uh, stumbling stones in front of people, that, that we should walk in love, and we're even willing to give up liberties in our Christian life for the sake of other people. Um, and then he talks about all these relationships that he's made by serving God and laying down his life. So in, in essence, uh, we, you know, he's saying, look, I didn't become less or have more difficult relationships or have trouble by laying down my life and serving Jesus. It just got richer and richer with other people around me. But today in chapter uh, 16, verse 17, he covers a, a kind of a difficult subject, kind of a, a darker subject, and that is false teachers or people that raise up dissension in these things. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some greetings and some promises that he makes. So we'll go ahead and start in chapter 16, verse 17. We'll read the whole uh, portion here, and then we'll get back and get stuck into it. Verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create, create obstacles Contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Aristus, uh, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. So we'll stop there. And we see that this beginning subject is difficult. You know, the church is, uh, it's really interesting the way people look at the church and understand it. Maybe you've noticed this sometimes as a Christian, like uh, people will come to the church for help, financial assistance or something, which is great. That's fine. We're not uh, poo-pooing that. Uh, you know, our general policy here at the church, in case you're wondering, as a side note, is we have actually prepackaged food supplies. Um, and so it's for uh, anybody who can't cook or anything like that. They can take a, a food or whatever. We don't, we don't really, uh, it's, not, it's rare that we give money away ever. And we never just give cash out. You know, sometimes people need fuel. We might meet them over there and get fuel or something like that. Um, but, you know, the funny thing is as soon as, or oftentimes I should say, because I'm not here to cast shade on anyone, 
oftentimes, as soon as you go, hey, we're not going to give you 20 bucks, but we do have these packages of food that will feed you for a couple of days. They just start dropping expletives, and they're like, I thought this was a church. And you're like, it is. Did you want to get saved and know Jesus? You know, no, screw that. I just want 20 bucks, you know. And again, I, I mean, people are where they're at, and they have their own. That's between them and the Lord, right? So we're not trying to pick on people. But the point is that a lot of times there's kind of this expectation of churches that you just come in, you can say what you want, you can do what you want, you can act how you want, and then that's cool. But the hard part and one of the most difficult parts of ministry is that Paul is calling us to the absolute opposite of that to an extent. Now, there's different degrees of this, and there's different people, and it kind of gets acted out in different ways. In this case, he says, he says, I appeal to you. So I think it's noteworthy that he's telling the Romans, like, I'm asking you to do this. Uh, you may not want to do this, but I'm asking you to do this. It's hard to have conflict here. Is anybody here who doesn't like conflict? Probably one or two of us. Uh, I'm weird. I don't care about it. Like, if we're going to have conflict, let's do this thing. I, you know, whatever. We can talk about it. I don't enjoy conflict, but it's just kind of part of life sometimes. But sometimes you don't want to have conflict. It's easier to go with the flow and be like, that was a really weird thing you said, but we'll just see what happens. You know, kind of, and it is what it is. But here he says, I'm appealing to you, brothers, and again, it's brothers and sisters, to watch out, literally to be always looking out. To, it's, a, it's not a, a passive thing. He, he's saying that we are to watch out, to look out, to be considerate for people who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that we've been taught. Now, what have we been taught? We're going through Romans, and we're just going to use the context of Romans, right? Because we've been taught a lot of things. And not to keep bringing up the same point, but I do think it's relevant. Remember, there's no Bible when Paul writes this, right? So there's the Torah, and there's the history books, and the poetry books of the Old Testament, but there's no Bible. They don't have the New Testament yet. In fact, it's about 100 to 110 A.D. is where there's kind of a collection of the four Gospels in Aramaic. And for the most part, that's what the church used for like 100 years. And, they, and then the, the, the letters were kind of sprinkled in there until you have the Council of Nicaea in 300, whatever it was. And they decide this is what the Bible is. So when Paul says what you've been taught, he's talking about itinerant preachers that have gone around with credentials from the uh, apostles and, and elders and so forth, and he's talking about what he just wrote them, right? And what did he just write them? In brief, he wrote them that we're all sinful, right? Chapters 1 through 3, I know we've reviewed this, but he, he, he writes, he says, look, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Whether you're a Jew and you've had exposure to the law, or you're an immoral Gentile that's an idolater, or you're a moral Gentile, or someone who stands upon their own righteousness and their moral mind, he says that we have all broken our conscience, we've broken law that we were aware of, and we've broken the law of our conscience, that we've lived that way. He says because of that, and because of our Adamic nature, our nature, in other words, that we're connected to seminally or by birth into Adam, that we have a fallen nature, right? That's oftentimes disputed, isn't it? And oftentimes more and more in Christianity, and we're getting to places where it's like actually we're not really sinners, we're kind of manifesting to become our own gods, right? This is a regular teaching in some places. So Paul says, no, we are all sinners by nature and by practice. Then he's going to tell us there in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, chapter 4, he says, look, but there's a Savior. He tells us in chapter 3, verse 20, he says, look, that righteousness has now been manifested or shown or given to us apart from the law. So chapter 3 and 4 is all about the fact, 4 is the example of Abraham, but it's all about the fact that righteousness comes to human beings through the blood of Christ and nothing to do with law. That a person is righteous completely based on what Jesus did at Calvary, right? And he makes the point, he says, look, in chapter 4, he says, if you try to incorporate works of any type, then the one who works makes their, basically their boss, he makes them a debtor. In other words, if I go somewhere and I work, I deserve a paycheck. He says, but the one who does not work but is righteous because of faith, he says that person is just, they're just righteous because God makes them righteous by faith. In other words, we don't do anything to be righteous and we never have, okay? 
very important concept. But it is by Jesus Christ's blood, which is very good news because all of a sudden we're secure in our salvation and we're not, we, we, we want to live for Christ, right? There's the motivation we have as Holy Spirit, but it's, it moves away from law and demand and it goes instead to love, right? So our relationship now with God is based on love and not law. It's based on interaction with the Holy Spirit, His empowering, His filling, and about us walking in obedience to what God has for us. The fruit of walking and the fruit of not walking, right? And that's where chapter 6 comes in. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 are all based on if you are a believer and you decide to yield your life to sin, and that manifests in all sorts of ways. If I decide I'm going to tell someone off because I know better than them. If I decide I'm just going to get hammered and walk down the sidewalk, there's going to be a fruit to that. If I decide, you know, fill in the sin blank on that, right? He says that we, if we yield our members to sin, our eyes, our mouths, our hearts, our consciousness, if I yield that to sin, in other words, sin comes into my heart, I entertain it, I walk in it, he says, I will reap death. He doesn't say I'll become unsaved. He says that the fruit of my life will be death. In what way? I'll be separated in my fellowship from God, right? And that's going to create in me anxiety and depression, rage, right? I'm going to act out against other people uh, you know, because I'm, I know that I'm in disobedience to God. I have the Holy Spirit witnessing to me. That's going to agitate me. People that are walking with Jesus are going to be like death to me because I'm going to be convicted by that. So I will lash out at them blame them, judge them, right? Those are the kinds of things that happen in our lives. If I have children, they're going to see this. They're going to see that I have chosen whatever it is over Christ. They will grow up with those value systems. Radical fruit, right? But if I yield myself to Christ, if I yield myself and I walk in the Spirit, oh, I will have struggles and difficulties and those things, but then that's going to produce a fruit, isn't it? It's going to produce a fruit in me that when I meet somebody who's walking with Jesus and we interact, there's going to be joy, there's going to be peace, there's going to be security. When I go through difficulties in my life and I suffer loss, there's going to be an acknowledgement and a claiming of God's promises, an excitement that God uses all things together for good, right? Which is where he goes next. In chapter 8, Paul lays it out and he says, look, all creation is waiting for the children of God, us, human beings that are saved, to finally get perfected in Christ, to receive new bodies, Christ to return, the whole kit and caboodle, right? Promises of heaven. He says that all creation is waiting for that. And he tells us that during this process that we're going through right now, where there's suffering and difficulty and all these things, he says that God is working all things together for good for those that love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. It's important. He doesn't say everything is good, right? He doesn't say that. He says that he is able, this is how secure our salvation is, that God is sovereign and so powerful that everything that does occur, if we let him by yielding, he will use it for good for his purpose. Now, what's his purpose? He told us that we're to be conformed, right? He predestined the believer to be conformed into the uh, image or in the, in, the, in the likeness of his son. Not divine but his attributes, his love, his care, right? So he didn't say he destined who would be a Christian, right? We're not teaching that. He destined what every Christian would be, right? Because his, the destiny was based on foreknowledge, not forcing someone, okay? So then in chapter 9, that sovereignty expands because we might say, well, hey, you know what? You're making all these fancy promises, but you made a bunch of promises to Israel, and what about them? You know, they haven't, not, not, not much has been going on with them ever since Malachi was on the planet. So what's going on there? And then Jesus, when they reject, after they rejected Jesus, it became essentially the church age. And so God begins to work with the church. So we might go, well, how can we trust your promises if you're not working with Israel? So in 9, 10, and 11, he says, no, 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 no. God is not done with Israel. God has a plan with Israel. The Israel, Israel is the Israel and the church is the church and the two are not the same. And so God, as a nation, is still working in Israel. Now, every Israelite from Jesus until today has had opportunity individually to receive Jesus, right? They all had that opportunity, and they all have that opportunity. God has not, during the church age, he has not, like, um, I don't know, repossessed the gospel only for Gentiles. We're not saying that. But as a nation, the promises to Israel that were given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, to David, to Moses, 
all these patriarchs, those are yet to be fulfilled in the last seven years of the earth's existence. Okay, So eight or 9, 10, and 11 are all about the fact that God is faithful and that he's working everything for his purpose. All right. Then in chapter 12, we looked at it. What was chapter 12? It is the practical reality of being a Christian. It's that it starts off with the whole idea, and he says, look, we are to be presenting ourselves as living sacrifices. Right. Same thing that Jesus taught us. He said it this way. Pick up your cross daily and follow me, right? Paul says it this way. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. It's all the same answer. It's Romans 6. It's Romans 7. It's Romans 8. It's that every day, practically, I wake up and I say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm yours today. My rights are yours. My privileges are yours. My will is yours. I'm yours. And if one of those things is violated, that's for you to take care of and to lead me in how to do that. But I want to do your will today, even though part of me doesn't want to do it because I know it could be hard or I don't like it or I know what you're calling to and I don't want to do that. And I'm going to go full Jonah or something like that. We still wake up and want to acknowledge, Lord, I'm, I'm yours. Work in my heart. Right. And we might have a devotional time where we get in the word a little bit and cast our cares on God a little bit in prayer, maybe sing a song or something, whatever. Well, however, you have found that helps you to grow close to the Lord in the morning or uh, in sometime during your day. That's that's for you to decide. Right. But in that reality of, of lifting and giving in my life, then I have this whole section of 12, 13, 14, 15. And for time's sake, it's this. I'm supposed to love everyone. That's what 14, 15, and, and, uh, 13, 14, 15 are. I'm supposed to love the people in my government and respect my government. Doesn't mean that we do everything they ever said. We, we talked about that. The bottom line is when there's a moral issue, a biblical moral issue, we're not called to rebel. We're called to disobey. And it's a big difference, right? Because we're not called to stick it to the man or do any of those things. We're called to disobey in a moral instance. We say, you know what? No, we're going to keep teaching from the Bible. You know what? We're not going to stop meeting. We might do it in secret, but we're not going to listen to you if you tell us to stop meeting for moral reasons. We're not going to do those things, right? Then, and then he talks about how to love people in the church, how to love people outside the church, how to love employers, right? All those things. How, how to do that and how we are calling is to lay down our own personal rights. In fact, he says that when he starts 15. He says that we who are strong, meaning people that are of strong conviction and walking in their faith, he says we who are strong have an obligation. In other words, a debt. We owe the other people around us to love them and to watch over them. So it's something that when we got saved... It's the one debt we incurred. And that's actually what he said. Remember in, in uh, Romans 13, 6, where he says, oh, or eight, oh, no, man, anything. And the, the context there is as far as like sinning. Don't sin against people. Don't cause yourself to owe them something. He's not talking about credit card debt, although that could be unwise. He's talking about don't sin in ways that somebody could say you owe me morally. He says, oh, no, man, anything except the debt that's from God to love that person. So then in chapter 16, he's, he does this really awesome thing. We already talked about it, all the relationships, all the great greetings that he gives and all these things. So what you have is when Paul says, and, he, and we come back to where our text is, he says that I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. He's talking about that. He's talking about the letter he just wrote. So he's, and there's, there's different context for this, too, because you, you can have like just full-blown false teachers. Right. People that want to come in and they want to say, no, you have to obey uh, the law. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the dietary law. You need to meet on Saturday because uh, it's the Sabbath, you know, or keep the Sabbath, however you'd like to label that. You have to do those things to be saved. That started way back about day two. Right. In the early church, pretty much 3000 people got saved. And then a bunch of people said, and we need to keep the law. That's literally how it went. That's not a new teaching. And so from the from day two on. The apostles, and specifically Paul, have been writing epistles to show, no, we don't, we don't keep the law. We don't do those things. But there were teachers called Judaizers that would follow Paul around to churches he had started and other believers. And they would say, hey, Jesus was a good start for you. That was cool that you received Jesus. He's definitely the Messiah, but it's not enough. 
you actually also need to do these other things. So they were full-blown teachers. And then, and then you have other teachers that came along, whether it be Joseph Smith or you know, fill in the blank, people that came along and said, no, 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 the Bible's not entirely, you need more than that, and here's a whole other book that you have, or my suggestions, or my notes on it, or whatever it might be that you need to be able to walk with Jesus. And that's, like, and that's in the context of just a full-blown false teacher. And we'll look at some other passages where sometimes they're, it's just, well, in this passage also, it's just their, 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 their lust. They do it for lust, whether that's power, whether it's recognition, whether it's money, right? All sorts of reasons that someone might be a false teacher. Dominance, having a cult to follow, you know, follow after you, whatever it might be, because people are broken and they do weird things like that, right? You can also just have someone in your body, uh, you know, the, in your church that is, maybe they're not a false teacher, but they just, there's something about it. They just love causing problems. You know, they're just not happy unless they're causing a problem. Uh, and, and, and there's some labels for this, right? He says, people that raise up uh, divisions, they cause divisions, and they create obstacles. So this is something that's, it's kind of not super fun to talk about. It's not, it's not the, the cool thing of, of all the relationships and the excitement of walking with Jesus and seeing the fruit come out of our lives. And it's not even something that's really, really fun to deal with, to talk about, to interact with, isn't it? It's conflict. But yet Paul calls all believers. He doesn't say elders. He doesn't say deacons. He doesn't say women. He doesn't say men. He says brothers, which is the Greek word for brothers and sisters. And he proactively says to be watching out for this. And then, you know, it's, I don't know if you've ever sat through like safety briefings in any job ever. Uh, I fixed cars for 16 years and at the more established shops, you have safety briefings and all that kind of stuff. And the, 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 I don't know, everyone I've ever been to, the company line is this, safety is everyone's job. You guys familiar with that? Safety is everyone's job. Hey, looking out for dissension is everyone's job. Because these people, this is, this is what it says they do. They cause divisions. So they come in, whether it's a person who's a false teacher, a person who wants to bring people to themselves, whatever it might be, and they just cause divisions. And it could be anything. It could be somebody that instead of, it's one thing to say, I have a problem with wearing masks, right? We don't have that anymore, but that was kind of a hot topic. It's one thing to say, I have a problem with wearing a mask. I don't think it's valid. That's, that's fine, right? It's another thing to come into church and go, what are you doing wearing a mask, you sheep? You government-fearing sheep. You're not hardcore for Christ. You think Jesus would wear a mask? You're like, I don't know. I didn't ask him. I mean, you know, but that's a whole other thing, isn't it? To mock someone for wearing a mask, to judge them, to make a mental judgment and to say you're weak or you have this or you have that. Especially when every person on the planet can point to 14 experts that tell them what they want to know, right? Isn't that how health works? I mean, it's just... It is, there's no end to it. There's no end of articles and research papers and statistics. To, there's just no end of it. So one is just stating a, a thing like, hey, I don't really want to wear a mask. I think it's a farce. I'm not going to wear one. one. The other is coming full-blown saying, you're an idiot if you do. So one is causing a division and one is not. If, if you were to come into a church where they said, hey, we're all going to wear masks, and you said, well, forget you, I don't care, I'm not doing it, now you've moved into division, right? Because you've decided that your right or your understanding of what masks are worth or not worth, it supersedes loving and caring about other people. It's really tricky stuff that can go on. It's really, it's hard to work through, admittedly. So you can also have the doctrine side of things. You know, the reason that safety is everyone's job is because we've had different people come in here over the years. We've had people come in that uh, they come in, they're King James only folks. And, hey, and I, here's the thing. I'm not going to measure these people's hearts. I don't want to say that out loud. Because if you truly believe in earnest that the King James Bible is the most accurate translation and that all other Bibles are influenced by Satan, you would probably be interested in trying to help people find truth, wouldn't you? But when you sit down with them and you say, okay, well, let's look at how the 72 or 70 scholars that translated the 1611 version and then the updated versions, and let's look at that and let's consider it. Now let's look at how the NIV was translated. Let's look at how the ESV, and you actually start to dig into those things. What you realize is that the King James only argument is paltry. It's weak. 
And, and it's ignorance. And I'm not trying to mock people that do it. I'm just saying that it's, it's a knee-jerk reaction based on a misappropriation of some verses in 1 Corinthians and a misunderstanding of how, trans, how translating the Bible works. We don't, we don't hate people for that, right? I mean, but if someone comes in the church and they say, you know what, I read the King James because I just, I feel like it's what I'm supposed to do. Hey, hands off, cool. We're not going to mess with you because we don't want to violate your conscience. But as soon as that person moves forward and says, so what does your pastor teach out of? What translation do, 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 do your elders use? What do you use? Ooh, the NIV, huh? The nearly inspired version. Ooh, I don't know. <laughs> wow, right? I don't really think that. I actually am a fan of the, the NIV. Uh, Blomberg, the guy who, was, who did some speaking here, he's part of the translating team of the NIV, does the updates and so forth. But all that to say is that that's what happens, right? And as soon as we move into that, now we're causing a division. And not only are we causing a division, but we're actually raising, uh, we're raising up, we're creating an obstacle. Because here's a person, like we'll take the NIV for example, it falls into a lot of criticism. Every criticism I've ever read, I've tried to turn to the verses and read it and, and never had a beef with it. I guess some people have, I heard a rumor, I never found it or not. There's like a, there's like a neutral pronoun one. And it didn't have to do with, it didn't have to do with, uh, transitioning or, or, or anything like that it had more to do with uh, including women, as I understand it. I've never seen one of those. Maybe it's true, maybe it's not. I don't know. But am I going to use a version that changes words to accommodate people? Probably not. Am I going to be upset that someone uses a version, a version of the Bible because they feel like it includes women? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to get upset about that. But so when we just have to be careful that when we're working through those things, like with the NIV, that we just say, hey, that's not the one for me, or it is, or whatever it might be. But we don't come in and then start making problems about it. Gifts of the Spirit can be the same thing. Cessationists, people that say the gifts of the spirits, not spirits, the gifts of the spirits died with the apostles, that they were for a limited time. And then where I would come from and say, no, the gifts of the Spirit are very much alive. There's no verse anywhere in the Bible it cannot be turned to that says that they stopped. And so that's what, but if somebody comes in and they say, oh man, you know, that's, yeah, I heard that uh, you guys like the, ooh, that's not, why don't you come to a Bible study at my house and I can teach you all about why they're dead, right? Now we're doing divisions. It's one thing to come in and say, I'll never give a word of prophecy because I don't believe that's real. Cool. It's a whole nother thing to say, hey, I need you to come over to my place. I'm having this great Bible study where I reveal the real truth to you. And if you come to me, then you can know. It's like a weird twisted version of Gnosticism. You know, all of us, I don't know why people mock National Treasure. I thought it was a great film. We all love National Treasure, though, for the most part, right? Because you're like, where are the secret goggles? Where's the brick, you know? And you're like, oh, ah, oh, oh, no. Secret Treasure. We all love Secret Treasure. We love the Goonies. When the rock opens, the ship goes out. You're like, Secret Treasure. Treasure Island has been on, like, the number one list for how long? Treasure. It's Treasure. So it's no surprise that all throughout humanity, starting in day two in the church, there was this Gnosticism, this idea that you can have secret knowledge. And this is how people do it. They, they come in. You know, the interesting thing is, for the most part, none of these people come to myself or the elders or deacons or anything like that. They don't do that. They stand in the back and they stand in corners and they, they talk to people. And then, and then it comes out like, do you know the seven layers of Hebrew? If you know all the layers of Hebrew, the Old Testament comes alive. And you learn when Jesus comes back. And you learn all this stuff. It is so tempting. It's secret knowledge. You can be on the in crowd. You can know secret stuff. It's like the goggles in National Treasure. You go with Hebrew and all of a sudden you just see everything. That's how it goes down. And they go, I'm having a Bible study at my house, and I have this great book by Rabbi so-and-so, and they blah, blah, blah. Nobody's saying don't have a Seder. You know what? Crush up a matzah and let your kids look for it and eat some bitter herbs. I'm into it. Go for it. But what we are saying, as soon as you begin to say, oh, these people lack, but I don't, come to, it's a division. So whether it's translation, whether it's, you know, whatever peripheral thing it is, or God forbid, sometimes people just come in, and they're just like, Oh, no, Jesus wasn't actually God. He wasn't, he wasn't actually resurrected. It was only a spiritual resurrection. He only swooned on the cross, and then he woke up later. All the things. And you come in and you say, no, 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 we're not doing that. You can't be here. So it's hard because we want to be in unity, right? We all say, why can't we all just get along? 
But the reality is we can't because there are certain people among us in different categories that for whatever reason need to insist on division. And so Paul says when you have someone like that in your church, you avoid them. In Titus, he says this, it gets a little bit more intense, and I just want to read this so that we can all be on the same page of how this works. Honestly, in 14 years, there's only been one person that I can remember we ever just said, hey, you know what, we love you, but you can't come here anymore. And I'll tell you what it was about. It was about the law. It was about a person who came here and uh, came a couple times, I think, and uh, actually uh, had some commentary after one of my teachings to me, and stayed one time and talked to some people afterwards, and we ended up having a big, long conversation. And, and it wasn't that you need the law to be righteous, but is what the, the, the thing was, or the, the, the doctrine that, w- that, that was very important to this person, was that the, 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 you were supposed to keep the law not for righteousness, but for love. That, by, that God interpreted your love for him by how much of the law you could keep, which is completely anti-gospel, right? I mean, that's, there's, there's, there's literally no statute for that in any book of the new covenant in any letter anything and so we talked i mean we spent hours four hours you know we talked about it and stuff like that we prayed about it for weeks as elders you know what should we do here and then we talked to him again and we said here's the thing you know what if you want to come here you can come here but you are never allowed to share that because that's akin to heresy and it's not healthy and it's wrong so if you know that we know that it's wrong, we're always going to teach that it's wrong, and you're never welcome to share that, and you can control yourself, then you can come here. And when it happened, he was here again, and he shared it with someone. After a teaching, we, he came, and he, he sat down with someone, and he said, well, you know, why do you think this, and why do you think Paul was welcome into the temple? And obviously, he, the only reason he could be welcome into the temple, and what it was, it was a bunch of assumptions. It was a bunch of inferences into the Scripture, and a bunch of wrong teaching. Do I feel pompous? Like, yeah, we're super awesome. No, it grieves me. Because you can see this guy loved Jesus. He absolutely loved Jesus. He was willing to do all the law for as much as he could, minus the sacrifices, because he loved Christ. He wanted to honor Christ in a radically unhealthy, slavish way. And so we came to him. We said, hey, look, you can't. I'm sorry. I wrote him a letter. The elders signed it. said, we love you. We think you love Christ. But that doctrine's poison, and you can't come here anymore. And we're sorry to have to say that. And he wrote me back immediately via email, and he basically said, you suck, and your church sucks, and I'll bet you have a bunch of fornicators that are running around, and you're not doing anything about them, and I'll bet the only reason you're picking on me is because I'm the only one that was man enough to, to oppose your teaching, and all this stuff. And you know what I said? Praise the Lord. It was such a relief to me, because like, now I know where you're coming from. That's awesome, because I was scared. I was like, are we doing the right thing? We moved forward in something that we thought was best for the body, not to dominate a guy, not to smash a guy, but because we don't want obedience to the law in this church. It's not biblical. And so when he came back with just this radical, vehement, angry, fleshly letter, I didn't rejoice in sin, but the exposure came out. Like, cool, that makes it so much easier to know where you're coming from. And it reflects what he says here to Titus. So Titus is considered one of the pastoral epistles. That's just fancy speak, for it means that Paul was writing to pastors. So he says here in Titus chapter 3, he has all this great stuff to say about the Lord and his working and how God's just doing these great things in our lives. And then verse 9. So chapter 3 and verse 9, but... Avoid foolish controversies. The word controversies is in, in the Greek is where we get our word scandal. Okay? So in the, the literal meaning is essentially something that causes doubt. So if you break a scandal on a political figure, what are you doing? You're, you're breaking this news to cause doubt on the political figure or religious figure, whatever it might be, right? So he tells us, he says, look, avoid foolish controversies. That's probably just a good life I don't know, mantra, avoid foolish controversies. It doesn't really matter if we've been on the moon or not. It really doesn't. I mean, I love a good conspiracy as much as the next guy, but it doesn't matter. Avoid foolish controversies. The book of Enoch, right? 
So many Christians have been shipwrecked in their faith over this weird fascination with Gnosticism, secret knowledge in the book of Enoch. Did he really write it? You know, oh, all these... You know what? We can trust that the people that put the Bible together, they were scholars, they were people that loved Jesus, and they got together and talked for days and days. And when they put the Bible together, the way they did it is they had a criteria. They said, they, the, the way that they did it is say, who did Jesus quote? He quoted the Psalms. He called David a prophet. We can include David's writings. They said, who did Jesus quote? He quoted Moses. He called Moses a prophet. We can include Moses' writings. They said, well, okay, what, what letters were quoted by the early church fathers? Who, who was discipled by John? There's certain lineages they can look at and say, oh, John discipled this guy. He constantly quoted the justice martyr, these different people that were, that were only a generation or two removed from the original apostles. Who did they quote? Who did they look to? What did they see as valid, right? It wasn't like the book of Enoch, like all the apostles were like, we got to get this in. And the council of Nicaea was like, no, never mind. No, it was painstakingly poured over. There's a reason the book of Enoch is not in the Bible, because it's invalid. So to go after it and doing in some sort of controversy and saying, no, 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 we need to bring this in. It's secret knowledge. It's false. It's a division. We reject it. So he says, look, stay away from conspiracy. Stay away from scandal. It says, avoid genealogies. Now, this could mean literally people arguing about genealogies and who is related to who and how that worked out. Or it could also be translated essentially bloodlines. In other words, trying to establish yourself as somebody because you had a certain bloodline. I'm of this lineage or I'm of, I'm of this forefather or whatever it might be. He says, don't get wrapped up in it. Then he goes on and says dissensions, which is literally like essentially to cause evil, to, to descend, to bring down, or to cause evil in something that's good. He says, don't give into that. Don't be a part of it. Avoid it. Quarrels about the law. Check this out. For they are unprofitable and worthless. Quarrels about the law. He says, avoid those. Don't get wrapped up in it. He says, it's, it's worthless to quarrel about the law. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Again, we're not trying to harp on people. It's not like, oh, this is my favorite part of the Bible. Let's just talk about false teachers and how we don't want them. That's not what I'm saying. But it's still a serious topic. And he makes the point. Now, this is not the person that comes to your small group and says, I don't understand that. Could you explain that more? Or, hey, one time I actually heard that the book of Enoch was really valid. Could you help me out with that? Or, hey, did Jesus have a wife? All right. That's, that's not the person we're talking about. That person's asking questions. Right. That person's saying, can you help me? We're talking about the person that comes along and raises their hand in your small group and says, well, actually. <laughs> right. I read a pamphlet once from, you know, whatever. And so now I have the superior knowledge. And you just go, oh, no, no, that's, that's a cool pamphlet. And we're glad for Rabbi so-and-so in Zimbabwe or whatever. But this is what the scripture says. And so we're going to go ahead and stick with the scripture says. That's the warning. Thanks for sharing, but that's the warning. Next home group, their hand goes up. Well, actually, I was reading from this guru and he said, and then, and then you'd probably pull them aside afterwards and say, hey, you know what? That's twice that you've brought your opinions based on extra-biblical extra sources. And you can't, you're not welcome to do that here. And he says if he does it a third time, he's out. He's gone. Which we don't really like, right? Because church. Like, you don't kick people out of church. If you kick people out of church, then how will they get churched and know to come to church? You can't do that. But if you look at like 1 Corinthians 5, every time it talks about kicking someone out, it's for, the, it's for a singular person. It's kind, of, it's kind of dramatic. Paul puts it this way. He says, you deliver such a one to Satan. And the idea is this. For someone who's trying to walk with Jesus, and even for someone who's not sometimes, church can be a really great place, right? Because you're surrounded, for the most part, with a bunch of nice folks, right? It's free coffee. It's meals now and again. Everybody usually is kind of interested in what's going on in your life. They want to care about you. They want to help you. All those things. 
So when someone who, in this case, is labeled as warped, right? there's something wrong with them. They're twisted, is the idea there. So the, 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 he says, for that person, they need to be put out. They need to not experience the blessings of church, the blessing of meeting with God's people. Because the, the, the brokenness that can occur from the being put out. Now, it's a little different now, right? Because in Rome, it's a bunch of home churches, and most of the believers stands to reason. They, a lot of them knew each other, right? I mean, Paul's able to greet 28 people from Rome, and he had never even been there. So it's most likely that a lot of them knew each other, but a lot, they mostly just met in homes and different places like that. So nowadays, if you get put out of a church, like if someone says, hey, you can't come here anymore, well, you just go down the street, right? And, and you just have a different story, or you just, you know, whatever it might be. But the Bible still says that, it's, that what we're doing, our goal is this, to put someone out, not to shame them, but so they'll feel their shame. I know Jesus took our shame away, and I'm all in it. I'm all for it. But when we're walking in disobedience, we, we self-condemn. We do something to ourselves. And so our job as Christians is to say, you can't do that. It's for the protection of each other, right? Because it's brothers and sisters that are doing this. Not just elders, not just pastors or whatever, not leadership. It's us. To say, hey, I care too much about the people that are serving Jesus in my proximity to let you stir that madness up. So you're not welcome here. We don't rage on them. We're not like, you're stupid and so is your book. You know, we don't, we don't do that. But we just say, hey, you, no, you can't do that. You can't come here. And typically, in my experience, which is not vast in that area, but in my experience, as soon as you approach someone with that, one of two things happens. They rage and leave, which is the typical, or they say, I didn't realize I was doing that, and I don't want to do that, and I don't want to not come to church. So can you help me to figure out how I cannot be divisive or how I can you know, do these things? And there's, there's great. And we've seen people that have, that, uh, not at this church, but in other churches I've been at, I've seen people that got excommunicated and they came back and they, and they realized, like, this is not what I wanted. This was not, you know, the world is not what I wanted. And now that I just got a full plate full of it without any kind of Jesus on the side, I realize how bad it is because I don't have that comfort anymore. Again, it's not something we revel in, not something we're excited in, but it's something we're called to do for the good of our body and the good of the people that are doing those things. Back in Romans chapter 16. You know, I just throw it out here. Uh, Thursday night, we just is a lot more dialogue and people, we do questions and stuff. I don't ever do that on Sunday, but I just want to throw it out there. It, it, if, does anybody have any questions about that? Uh, and the reason is because this is a really important topic. And, and you can get some churches, and it, we don't want to give off a vibe that like we're like, we just kick people out willy-nilly and don't care. But we also don't want to give a vibe that we just roll over and, hey, it's cool, we do whatever you want. So does anybody, honestly... Feel free to ask a question. Even if you're like, I can't ask a question. It's too scary. Just ask it. If you have a question, five other people have the same question. I promise you. Are we all good? Okay. <laughs> all right. Back here in chapter 16, we're going to go on. He says this. This is what they do. He says, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. So they are not serving Jesus by bringing these things up. They are serving their own appetite. In other words, like we talked about, they get something out of it. Uh, in other translations, it li the literal translation is their God is their belly. They worship their belly is, their, is the literal translation there. So they're, they're doing these things because it, it, it promotes something for them, some sort of personal gain. Um, so as we, and he says what they do is they use smooth talk. Literally, they, they're good at using words. That's what, it, that's what it comes out to. They're good at using words. So they use smooth talk and they use flattery and they deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, this is uh, difficult. So naive is, number one, Paul's not insulting anyone. Okay, <laughs> just throw that out there. A lot of times if we throw the word naive around, we're saying like, oh, that person was born under a rock and they're naive and they're, we're kind of saying like they're, they're uh, I don't know, ignorant and stupid or something like that. That's not what he's saying. It literally means without guile. They have no guile or no, no suspicion. So there's kind of different people in the world. Have you noticed that? You know, kind of different personalities, different types, all those kinds of things. And I don't think one is right or what is wrong or whatever. I don't think that's what we're here to decide. But there are people that they come to church, and I actually would admire them because this, everything's just all good. Everybody's all good. They're all good. Everything's all good. They're just joyful people, right? 
And they're people that they take everybody at face value. And if you have a Bible study at your house where you go through the 15 layers of Hebrew and that's going to make you know, perfect discovery for me and then I'll understand to be able to divine the date that Jesus is coming back, then I'm in. Sounds good. I haven't heard that before, so I'd really like that information. No guile, no anger, no nothing. And there's, just, there's people that are like that. And maybe you're like that. And God bless you in that. Literally, I, I don't at all want to come off like I'm making that a small thing. I, I bet that that's an amazing way to live. And then there's other people that are watching and they're just looking and they don't trust as much. And you could, again, we could make probably a million arguments about that. You could say, oh, it's because they were hurt or they were this or that. I have no idea why. But there are people that just, they don't take you at face value. And they need to get to know you. And they watch out for things. And so what happens is, one of the things that these false teachers do or people that want to sow divisions do they go to the people and they find the people that are, everything's just all good. And they use flattery and they're good with words. Oh, no, 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 I'm not saying that your pastor's wrong. I'm just saying that there's other sources besides the Bible that really help you understand the Bible. Half truth. And so if you come to my Bible study, I just got this thing for $59.95 off the internet that completely describes how Hebrew will change your life. Right? That's how it comes about, isn't it? And so Paul says, no, it's all of our jobs to, to protect each other and to make sure that when somebody's saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to this great Bible study and, you know, whatever, we're all going to sacrifice a chicken to be more closer to the old covenant so we can shed some blood. And I, I'm really excited about the sprinkling. You're like, hmm, no, I don't think that that's a scriptural idea. And this is where it says it, pretty much right here, Right? <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. So that's how it goes down. Next, he's going to have a little bit more greeting. He says there in verse 19, he gives them a vote of confidence in verse 19. He says, for your obedience is known to all. So he's not insulting them. He says, look, everybody around the world, every, all the churches, they, they're familiar with how obedient you guys are. It's amazing, not to Paul, but to, to the truth that they've been given up to this point. And he says, I rejoice over you. I, I like to think about you. I'm excited about you. He says, but I want you to be wise in what is good. So he says, look, I shared this last bummer part with you, this difficult, darker part of church life, of Christianity. Not dark because it's wrong, but it's, it's, it's hard to deal with sometimes. He says, I'm sharing this with you because I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent to what is evil. Notice he does not say ignorant as to what is evil. No, am I saying we should go off and study every wickedness and get familiar with all the minor gods of the Philistine? No, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that we need to not pretend there's not evil. It's not like we can just go around and be like, oh, everything's good. But see, we're, we're to be wise in what is good. What does that mean? Wisdom, as we say many times, wisdom is the proper application of knowledge, right? So knowledge is to know something. Wisdom is to take that knowledge and do what is right with it. Right? So if I know a boiling pot of water is hot, that's knowledge. Wisdom is I don't touch it. Right? So that's what he's saying. So he says, I want you to be wise in what is good. I want you to use the good. What's the good contextually? The doctrine, what they've been learning, what he's been talking about. He goes, I want you to be wise. I want you to well utilize what I've encouraged you with. He says, but I want you to stay innocent in the evil. So he gives them, and this is in context with what? Dealing with false teachers and dealing with division. So how are they called to stay innocent in what is evil? To do what he just said. To stick to the word of God, pure, purely to the word of God. To stick to what they've been taught. To stick to the letter that they have. And to reject the false teachers and the division makers. That's what he's saying to them. So he says, be wise in the good. Be exercising the good, applying the good, work through the good. In the evil, it's there, but be innocent of it. Don't have any part with it. Make sure you nip that stuff in the bud when it arises in your, in your church. Then he gives them a promise in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So, amen, huh? So, interestingly enough, you may be familiar with this. In, in Genesis chapter 3, the promise that is given to Eve is that God says to Eve, look, you're going to have seed, and your seed, your offspring, that the serpent, Satan, will bruise his heel, but your offspring will crush his head. 
Right? So it's kind of the first gospel promise. And that's what we've seen throughout humanity uh, in the sense of the bruising of the heel, but yet there's victory. And it's what we ultimately and literally saw in Christ and that he was crucified. All right? It was crucified by unrighteous men uh, and women motivated by Satan. But then he rose from the dead and crushed the serpent's head. But as Paul has been talking about in, in Romans 8, as we already mentioned, there's a day coming where all will be victory and all will be equity. And every person will be rendered what they deserve. I love that in the Psalms. Multiple times it says that our God will come and judge with equity. We don't ever have to worry that someone is going to get away with something. That someone somehow is going to escape judgment. Or when you look at incredible heinous crimes or whatever it is, you go, how could there ever be equity with that? And God says, no, you don't understand. When I come back, there will be equity across the board. Everyone will get what they deserve. It's noteworthy, it's noteworthy too. For time's sake, we won't turn there. But there's something at hand that we have to understand. 1 John 5 tells us this. It says that the whole world, cosmos, created, created universe, the whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. Okay? We're told, uh, or we're told also by, in a sense of nuance that when Jesus goes into nuance, meaning like it's not necessarily in the text, but it seems to be indicated with these other verses, when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness, Satan offers him to give him all the kingdoms of the world. Right? Remember that? He says, if you worship me, I'll give you every single person in the world and they will worship you. So in essence, Satan is offering Jesus a cheap knockoff of what Jesus came to get. But the interesting thing is, when Jesus responds to him, he doesn't say, you don't have the right to offer that. You can't give me that. No, instead he goes to the word and he says, no, you only worship the Lord. So Jesus' dispute with Satan isn't that he doesn't have ownership over those kingdoms. His dispute is how he's going to accomplish reclaiming it which he does in Revelation where we see the popping of the seals and the rolling of the scroll. That's probably another teaching we don't have time for. But with these other verses that we know that, that Satan, he's called the God of this world. We're told that, the, as we just said, that the whole world lies in the power of the wicked one. Uh, some translations say the arms of the wicked one. Uh, we know that he's the prince of the power of the air and he's at work in his pneuma, the spirit, which is that word pneuma or wind that blows in the sons of disobedience. This is Satan's world. Now, God is sovereign, okay? It's not like there's a wrestling match, and like, who's going to win? Oh, Satan got an uppercut there. No, no, no. God is sovereign, and he is using all things together for good. So even though Satan is the wind, the pneuma, the spirit behind, was driving this whole world, that's why we're not shocked that every single nation on the planet is going towards unrighteousness. Because Satan's a busy dude. And if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you can only listen to one other spirit. And it's the God of this age, which is Satan. So we don't have to be freaked out by that. We don't have to think like, oh, Satan. No, no, no. He, he's, he's doing him. Satan is just doing what he wants to do. And unbelievers are being blown along with that. So when we see this promise that he will soon crush his head, it's not just an arbitrary thing. Satan is at work in the world today. Deceiving well, Jesus told us, right? He comes not but to steal, kill, and destroy in John chapter 10. So that's what he does. But he says, but don't worry. Amongst all the mess, everything that's going on, there will be a finality. There's a finality coming to it. And so we take heart in that. And we don't, we're not scared of him. We don't mock him. We don't want to be weird about it, but we're not scared of him. Right? Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We know that God is mightier than him. We know it's not a big wrestling match. We know that God is using Satan in his rebellion and his rage to accomplish his own purposes. We take comfort in that. And so there's great things ahead. He greets a couple of people lastly, and then, he, and then he makes a promise. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret from long ages, which is the gospel that, that Paul is describing here in Romans, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to uh, the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. 
giant sentence, a lot to unpack, but basically this. He says he's able to strengthen you. So he says Satan's head is going to be crushed someday, but for right now, he's able to strengthen you. How are we strengthened? We're strengthened according to the gospel. What does that mean? For as much as we allow the gospel into our lives, we will find strength in it. Supernatural Holy Spirit strength. Through the preaching, for the much as we allow the word of God to sink into our lives, we will find strength. According to Revelation, the, the revealing or the manifesting, for as much as I let the gospel be revealed in my mind, I accept its truth and I walk in it, I'll be strengthened. That's what Paul's saying here. And then he says, because of that, there's glory to God. Doxa, that word that we've talked about a lot of times. There's, there's glory to God. Good opinion <laughs> is literally what it means. Good opinion to God. Uh, and so that's, that's what we're called to do, and that's what God has for us. So God is good, huh? So next week, God willing, I don't know, sometimes we mix it up and, and do a couple intermediate or inter, in-between in teachings on something different, but uh, the plan at this point is 1 Corinthians for next week, and uh, we'll get going on that. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and your kindness and your grace. Thank you, Lord, for its light, its illumination. Lord, thank you for its conviction, its comfort. Lord, thank you for just the love of Christ that's proclaimed in it for us. Thank you, Lord, for your purpose from the world that has now been revealed through prophetic writings. Thank you that you are just so good. Lord, we, we can freely admit it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions, they fail not. Lord, thank you for, I don't know, everything. It's kind of difficult to vocalize, but we're so glad for what you've done in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would be those that love our community. Lord, that we love righteousness, that we'd be aware of evil. Help us, Lord, to be on the watch and to protect one another. And Lord, to lift up our Savior. Lord, may we have opportunities this week for the gospel, for comfort, for service, uh, to show people your love. And we pray for your presence in our homes and our lives as we move forward from here. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys.